Welcome to the Push Through Podcast. I'm your host, Keisha Reeves, a licensed professional counselor that owns a group practice here in Atlanta, Georgia. I specialize in women's issues as well as maternal mental health. Here on the podcast, we'll be talking motherhood, womanhood, and a little bit of everything in between. So sit back, relax, and enjoy a quick chat with me. Thank you guys for joining us for another episode of the Push Through Podcast. And I'm so honored to have Regina Townsend of the Broken Brown Egg. She is an advocate for infertility, black maternal health, um, as well as a librarian and a mother in all wonderful things. Welcome to the show, Regina. Thank you for having me, Keisha. I appreciate it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it's such an honor to be able to follow someone's work and then to reach out to them, to ask them to be on the, on the show. And then they actually agree and say, yes, <laughs> and we set it up and it, it actually happened. So I was, when you responded, I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. <laughs> I'd be like, if it fit in the schedule, cool, let's go. Let's go. This is my, this is my soapbox. I enjoy this soapbox. So I'm usually just surprised that somebody wants to talk to oh, me. Yes. So I'm, I'm grateful that you invited me. <laughs> Now, before we get into it, um, you are in Texas? Chicago. Chicago. Why did I think Texas? Okay, Chicago. And how long have you been there? My whole life. Oh. This is actually the house that I grew up in. Oh, that's so cool. Um, we just moved back here to uh, to stay with my aunt. She, she um, invited us to stay with her while we save up for a house. Oh, cool. And so we're in the house that I grew up in, on the block that I grew up in. <laughs> With and um, it's actually the house that my mom and and her siblings grew up in. So we've been on this block for over fifty years. Wow! So, whole life. <laughs> That's amazing. What is what was it like growing up in Chicago? You know what? I think the thing that people think when they think about Chicago, like when my my grandfather's family is from uh, Louisiana, and a really small town in Louisiana called Farmerville is a little bit from Grambling and Ruston and Monroe and. Um, when we would go down there and I would meet other kids or whatever, and I'd tell them I was from Chicago, they'd be like, it's gangs in Chicago. Um, <laughs> That's the first thing that would come to their head. And I'd be like, I don't have a scene. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that that's the perception that I always grew up with is people's belief about Chicago is that it's dangerous and violent. And those things exist, but they're also really cool people that live here. I've had an amazing block. Like I said, my family has lived on this block for over 50 years. And then at the end of the block, I have one cousin that lives, they, they've had their house at the end of the block for over 40 years. And then the next block over, I have another cousin that's lived there for 30 plus years. So I grew up in a neighborhood where everybody kind of knew each other. Mm. You could walk around and kind of, you know, if, if somebody saw me down the street, doing somebody had no business, they was going to call <laughs> down the street, tell my mama or my grandma. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> this has been um, great for me. And I'm hoping that Judah, while we're staying here, is getting some of that, too, that he's getting that feel of. Even just now when I got home and I got out of the car, one of our neighbors that have been our neighbors forever, I was like, hey, Andre. And I looked and Judah was just waving, hi. And I was like, he's learning. <laughs> he's learning. So um, I've, I've always loved Chicago. And what I try to do is 
preach Chicago as I would if I was a tourist. Mm. So when we're bored, when we don't have nothing to do, we'll get in the car and go downtown. We'll drive to other neighborhoods because Chicago is a city of neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So what what people experience on the south side is completely different than what people experience on the north side or the west side or Mm -hmm. east side. And there's all these different little neighborhoods in those sides. So sometimes we'll drive and go sightsee and see how other people are experiencing Chicago because they're in many cases experiencing a whole different city. And so it's, it's a fun place to live. It has its things. Yeah. I'm not going to act like those things don't exist, Mm -hmm. but it is also, um, full of history and beautiful architecture and art and black people. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I've, I've only been to Chicago once. I went to visit a friend who was in, um, school there and I, why I don't know, but I came in December. <laughs> Maybe it was like the week <laughs> after Christmas. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, it was because I think I feel like we were just staying in the house because it was a blizzard outside. <laughs> we have two seasons. We have winter and then we have summer. We kind of skip over spring and fall don't really fool with us. It's, it's either really cold or it's hot. Right. Right. <laughs> now, summertime shy, what we're in right now, mm. is beautiful. It's beautiful. The lake is beautiful. We went to the aquarium last week. It, there's so many things and there's so much street art that even if you don't have any money to go somewhere, oh. like go to the art institute, yeah. you can just get in the car and drive and it's like a, a moving art gallery. So that's cool. Come back in the summer. Yeah, yeah. I've heard great things. What I what I know of Chicago, of course, is like Harpo Studios, um, The Bulls, Michael Jordan, Kanye West, and you guys, didn't you, you used to have like a food festival or like a taste of Chicago yeah, or something like that? Chicago. Yeah, the yes. taste of Chicago. Yeah, yes. When I was growing up, my mom has worked for the city for 32 years, mm-hmm. so when I was growing up, I would go downtown all the time because they would have take your daughter to work day and I would go with her, so... I would see the taste because she worked literally on Michigan Avenue. So I could just walk across the street to the taste Mm. of Chicago. So I have memories of doing that when I was younger. I have memories of, um, and and part of that is also how I learned about service Mm. because my mom, she works for the department of housing and development and she would, they would do these senior citizens picnics and the black women's expo and, the employees got a chance to volunteer at those and I was allowed to go with her. And it always made me more aware of how important service was. And Mm. even on this block, my grandmother, she was a stay at home mom and a uh, homemaker. And she believed in service that I saw without her ever leaving the house. If Mm -hmm. somebody was sick, if somebody passed away, she would from her seat (laughs) at her dining room table, she would have those big yellow legal pads and Mm. she would have, everybody on the block's name and then she would start a phone tree what do you have that we can send and then it was my job to take that sheet and go down the street and collect for whomever she was giving to so being in Chicago has taught me so much about service and so much about community and so much about family that it is kind of a a strange progression of what I do with the broken brown egg now Mm. after looking at service and, and family in such a way and now coming at it from another way yeah. of like, well, how do people even get to build a family in the first place? Yeah. And how can community help with that? So 
it's I, I love it. I love my city. I, I always try to think of where would I go? No, I'm just stay. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel about Georgia. <laughs> I can't see myself. That's on my list else. to go visit. Now mm-hmm. they might, they might get me. <laughs> don't. Now that's how they look at Chicago. Now don't look at, don't look at Georgia no, like that. I get down there and I'd be like, I can't like this. I can't go. Yes, there. yes. I love our <laughs> southern hospitality, our food, our culture. I, it's, I love it. I love Georgia. Now, um, let's chat a little bit about your own motherhood journey. Um, when learning about the obstacles of infertility, PCOS block fallopian tube, hypothyroidism, type 2 diabetes. How did you give yourself space to process this? And even like, I I know that about you from um, reading up about you, following you on social media. Um, But talk a little bit about the obstacles of when you learned um, about the challenges that you had to face um, in trying to become a mother and how you were able to push through those challenges. Yeah, so it... As you said, it's a, it's a list. <laughs> it's a gamut. Um, and it's a gamut that I did not know existed. I didn't know that any of those things existed. I didn't know that any of, I didn't know what any of those words meant. The only word that I knew was thyroid. And, and even that, I knew hyperthyroid mm. because that's what my mother had. Um, and I remembered when she was pregnant with my sister, I was nine years old, but I remember she lost so much weight and her eyes seemed so big and she was sweating all the time. She had issues with her hair. And I remember hearing her talk about her thyroid issues and I still didn't know what a thyroid was. And I was like, okay, guess that has something to do with her having a baby. But that was nine year old me. Mm. Fast forward to 16, 15 year old me. And I was doing every every exercise plan that every all of my friends were doing and couldn't lose anyway i was dealing with my hair thinning i was dealing with always being cold always eating ice mm. always all of those things and um my periods were extremely long and irregular and my mom when she took me to the doctor they said well we think it might be hypothyroid which is the reverse of mm. hyperthyroidism and um so for years, I thought that's what the problem is. It's just my thyroid. And so if my period is out of whack, I just take my Synthroid and I, you know, figure out if it comes, if it comes and, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. And I didn't really put too much stock into what that meant on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. So when I got married, we got married at 23. We decided to hold off a little bit and get ourselves a little bit more stable at least, you know, get a nice apartment at least. Mm -hmm. And then um, I realized that I was not getting pregnant. And I also was having those same long, stupid periods Mm. still. And and it was to the point where at at, at a certain point, it wasn't even so much about the baby part. It was, I would really like to not bleed 40 days. Right. I would really (laughs) not like, I would really like to not have to buy three boxes of always. Yes. Um, I would really like to not be anemic and, be eating ice all day because my iron is so low. I would really like to just not be freezing. I I, I just want normal. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I would go to these doctor's offices because I didn't have insurance sometimes. And so I would go to a doctor's office and they wouldn't know my name. They wouldn't know me. And I would tell them what was going on and they would give me birth control pills. Or I would be bleeding for weeks and then I would finally go to the ER and I would sit there for hours Mm. and there was 
times where I would sit there and I, I just one I, one night I know we had sat there so long that we had had dinner. We had just been there and I was just like, let's just leave because nobody's going to help me and nobody wants to help me. And so let's just go. And everything would just get solved with birth control pills. But I kept feeling like this is counterproductive right. to what we want to do. Um, but I also felt this heavy, it was heavy on two sides. The one side was, why isn't this working? Because mm-hmm. my grandmother, my great grandmother had 10 kids. Mm. My paternal grandmother had nine. So in my head, I'm thinking, you know, this, this is black people don't have this issue. I've mm. never heard of black people having this issue. I don't see any black people having this issue. What's wrong with me? And so there was that fear of like, what is something might be really wrong. And then there was the other fear that was from all of your life. You're told, don't get pregnant. Yeah. Black girls need to do this. You need to do that. And so for me, I'm thinking, I don't even know if I feel comfortable saying I want to be pregnant mm. because that goes against what everything, whatever I've been told. And if I don't have the job and if we've only been married for this long and I don't have a house. And mm-hmm. so there was this weight of, I don't even know if I can say that I want this. Mm-hmm. And I do want this and I don't even know why it's not working. Mm-hmm. And so the two were just really difficult. And so I started looking for blogs and, and information. And I had, I was a part of a website at the time called Chocolate Brides. And it was a message board. And it was for um, Black women who were getting married because that's another area where we're not represented. Mm-hmm. And um, Keisha Monk, who is a voiceover talent and a former radio personality, she started Chocolate Brides when she was getting married in 2003 because she didn't see any Black women on bridal magazines, on the bridal shows, except for like Bridezillas. Yeah. You didn't see us. And so she started Chocolate Brides so that we could connect and talk about, you know, where can I get a broom made if I want to have a jumping of the broom? Mm. Where can I get things for a libation ceremony if I want to do that? Or what if I want my dress made in an African garment, like those kind of things. And so people found that they get so much more than just the wedding stuff. So mm-hmm. they would stay after the wedding, they would stay, they would open a, a house buying journal or a personal journal. And some people would start a baby journal, pregnancy journal. They would talk about their journey. And there were two women specifically who talked about IVF and loss. And I was like, whoa, that's, that, it sounds terrible for them. Mm-hmm. I didn't know black women needed to go to a fertility clinic. I wouldn't even know how to do that. I hope it works out for them. Yeah. Like in my head, it was still like, that's not my wow. story. Yeah. Yeah. That mm-hmm. sounds okay. They must have money. Like mm-hmm. all those things started running in my head. Um, and it wasn't until a couple years later, after I had been married for a couple years and we had been trying, and then I was like, Oh, oh, this is what that was. Mm. This is this is not rare. This is something that affects us. Mm-hmm. And so then I started looking for blogs. I was like, because these couple of women on Chocolate Brides can't be the only black women. Can't just be us. Mm-hmm. So I went looking and I didn't see anybody. I didn't see anybody that looked like us that was actively talking about it from an advocacy standpoint. I think at, at best I found like three or four sites that were actually like not even updated anymore it had been they were anonymous it was nothing that was like 
pictures of a black woman talking about this or Mm -hmm. a black man talking about this or or even somebody that was like, you know, I don't see anybody. Let's keep going. Who can I get? I didn't see any of that. And I said, you know what? I'm angry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just got angry. I was like, you know, nobody talked about this in sex ed. Nobody said that this was a thing. Nobody said that black women experienced this. Nobody told me that if I did go to school and get the husband Mm -hmm. and degree and all of that, that it wasn't going to work out. Nobody said that. Mm -hmm. I'm angry. And so I started posting that on Facebook and just saying, you know, hey, that aunt that doesn't have any kids, maybe she couldn't have any. Yeah. Or I started saying, you know, people are quick to tell people to adopt, but they don't realize that it costs upwards of $12,000. You got Mm $12,000. Like I just started saying all of those things to just kind of knock the door down. Um, And people started messaging me and saying, thank you for bringing that up. Thank you for saying something. And the more that I would have that response, the more I kept talking. And then I started the blog and I just started saying what I was experiencing as in real time. So I would go to the doctor and hear, okay, so it is your thyroid, but also maybe it's this. Mm. (laughs) And I would find out that, you know, through, through years of going to doctors and sometimes them not believing me, going to doctors and them kind of misdiagnosing Mm. me, not kind of, actually misdiagnosing me. Yeah. Um, Being told just lose weight as the first thing without even them looking at my chart and really figuring out what was going on. Um, And so that's how I found out that it was the hypothyroidism plus polycystic ovary syndrome, um, which I had never heard of. Mm -hmm. And even then when I told my doctor, because the, the doctor who told me, I think you might have PCOS, was a reproductive endocrinologist from St. Louis. His name is Dr. Elon Simkis. Mm-hmm. And he was following my blog and he oh, invited wow. me to lunch because he was here in Chicago. Wow. Actually across the street from Harpo Studios. <laughs> and I went to lunch with he and his wife. And when we were sitting there, we were just talking about what my plans were for the broken brown egg and what my plans were moving forward as an advocate. And while we were sitting there, he said, you know, I'm looking at some of the darker spots of your skin. And I think that you should ask your doctor about polycystic ovary syndrome because it does, in some cases, cause some skin marks and blemishes that many people won't pick up on, Mm. but could mean that you have polycystic ovary syndrome. And he also talked about, like, if there's facial hair, there's there's a lot of different markers. Mm -hmm. So you should ask your doctor about it. And so I got a new doctor and I was excited because I was like, oh, this doctor told me what it might be. Mm -hmm. And so I went to her and I said you know, I think it might be PCOS. I just read about it and I, I was learning about it. And she was like, it is not PCOS. Oh, no. It, oh, yeah. She was like, everybody has Google and they think they're a doctor, but uh, it is not PCOS because you don't have any cysts on your ovaries. And so it can't be that. And I remember just feeling like, well, dang, I thought I had an answer, but apparently I don't have an answer. I'm back at square one again. And I have left. And when I got outside, I was so upset because I was like, I came to her and told her what I thought it was. And she yeah. didn't even investigate it. Right. She was just like, just dismissed nah. it. Yeah. Girl, no, nah, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not a doctor. Mm. Um, and meanwhile, I hadn't had the courage or even the, the wherewithal in the moment to say, well, I'm not a doctor, but it was a doctor who yeah. told me right. to say this to you. Right. But I didn't even think that at the moment. I was so kind of shook about like, 
dang, I thought I had a plan. I ain't mm-hmm. got no plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to come back for a follow-up appointment. Um, and when I called for that follow-up, she wasn't there. And I said, well, is there somebody else I can see? Mm-hmm. Is there somebody else I can see? And again, this is something I didn't even know we could do. I've never changed doctors. Oh, I changed I've providers. Never, yeah. Yeah. I don't I didn't even know that was a thing that mm-hmm. you could be like, you know what? I don't even want to come back and see you. So I felt away, but I did it anyway. I was like, can I see another doctor? <laughs> um, and when I came back and saw that doctor, she said, I, I kind of tested it on her too. I said, you know, I think it might be PCOS. I've been reading about that. And she said, okay. That sounds okay. If that's what you think, then let's look into that. Wonderful. I trust you with that's your body. Let's look into it. It was like, you know, <laughs> angel singing. It was like, wait a minute. She listened to right. me. It was the first time in what at that point had been years that a doctor had actually listened to me mm-hmm. and asked me what I thought and then agreed to look into it with me mm-hmm. like a teammate mm-hmm. would. Mm-hmm. Um and at that point, I had just been using the broken brown egg to help keep me going. Because that was a lot of blows back to back to back. It was, you go for, you know, testing and they tell you nothing. I, I, there were times I would go and nobody would call me back. And then I would have to call and say, so were there ever results to the, mm. that blood test that we did mm. three, mm. four months ago? Like, nobody would say anything. Mm-hmm. And I was so tired of feeling like I was chasing them. And like I was an inconvenience mm-hmm. and I was getting on their nerves just trying to figure out what was wrong with me. Meanwhile, I was like bleeding half to death mm-hmm. and tired all the time. And, you know, there's no you have no sex life and you're trying to have a baby because you're yeah. bleeding or you're trying to figure out when you're ugly. Like you have no your quality of life just plummets. And it's like nobody cares. Yeah. And I was so frustrated about it. And I really appreciated that when she said that. That wasn't like a a one-time thing. Like to this day, and it's been, if Judah is four, it's, it's, it's at least nine years now that she's been a doctor. And to this day, when I go to an appointment, she'll ask me, how's the broken brown egg? How are the people? Mm. Or she'll tell me, I have a patient that follows your site. And I told her. You know, that's a great sight. I couldn't tell her that I knew you because of HIPAA, but I just was so (laughs) proud. And so, like, that means a lot to me that she cared about me and that I'm a person. Yeah. Not just a patient, but a person. As it should be. Yeah. And, like, I'm concerned about my body. I'm concerned and afraid. Mm -hmm. And she really respected that. And so getting all of those hits blow by blow by blow. And then in the meantime... My husband discovered that he had type 2 diabetes, and so he was struggling with his own health and his own body. Mm. And it was just such a strain on us Mm -hmm. that the broken brown egg, while it is a service for other people, it has really been a grounding technique for me Mm -hmm. to say what I'm thinking in the moment and not feel like I need to, let me be quiet, let me not say that, don't say that, be quiet. Just, just go to work. Just play it smooth. Just no. Sometimes I want to be like, you know what, this sucks. Yeah. And I need to say it sucks because it sucks. Mm-hmm. Like that's freedom. That's empowerment. Is the, the ability to say it, and then not only that, but then to have somebody respond and say, 
thank you for saying that, mm-hmm. girl. Me too. Mm-hmm. They don't realize how much that means for me. Because yeah. then that tells me, Virginia, you're not crazy. You're not doing too much. You're mm-hmm. not overthinking it. That is a real feeling that you're experiencing. And you have the right to feel that way. You have the right to address it. So mm. all of that. <laughs> I mean, that was all of it. Yeah. Well, to break down some of it, I think like how you describe the initial provider is common for a lot of women where they, you know, like sometimes I think in our society, we make it look like, well, these are the doctors. They know all my life is in their hands and just trusting them with the information. But I think, like you said, it is a collaborative thing because it's your body. So it should be a teamwork effort and you guys should work together. Like you are an expert on your body. They are an expert on the medical field. Let's collaborate. Let's figure this thing I've out. I've been in this body my whole life. <laughs> yes. You just met it. Yes. You know? So everything that you know and what I know could work together if Absolutely. you accept me, you know, as a teammate. But then it's also where culturally we have a, a distrust of doctors. Yes. And so that mistrust, which is valid, right? you know, from experimentation on black people to mistreatment and dissection of black people. There's so many layers mm-hmm. to why we don't think First of all, we don't want to go in the first place because mm-hmm. we don't trust them. Mm-hmm. And then also, when we do go, we feel like, let me not cause no trouble. Let me not say too much. Mm-hmm. Just tell me what you need me to know so I can get out of here. Mm-hmm. Okay, you the doctor. Let me go. We don't have a history that other other races have of feeling empowered and feeling like they're the person in charge. When we go, we feel beholden to the other person. So yeah. when you look at it from a a standpoint of no, I'm the I'm the coach. Yeah. I choose who's gonna be on the field. Yep. It's a completely different feeling. And that was something I had to learn along this process because mm-hmm. at first I didn't feel like the coach. I felt like they're the coaches and they're just gonna tell me what plays we mm-hmm. need to do. And I'll just do that and we'll see what happens. Right. I don't have time for that. Yeah. Yeah. And you're you're out there suffering in yes. silence. And the coach is not not helping at all. (laughs) Needlessly. Mm -hmm. There were times where I've sat in doctor's offices and it's it's mostly what made me so angry was when I thought about other people who did not have insurance Mm -hmm. and did not have, you know, I looked at the fact that here I am, someone who has an advanced degree and a a salary job and I'm being treated this way. Not to say that I'm better than anybody, but I looked at that and then I thought about, what about the person who goes who doesn't have insurance so they have to go to the county or the clinic yeah. and they're being treated this way and they don't even know how to say these things. Mm-hmm. And that's what really started making me think, okay, we have to talk about this conversation with, in terms of the medical community and black women, mm-hmm. the medical community and black reproductive health mm-hmm. and what that means because I was suffering and also not being heard mm-hmm while knowing how to say some stuff. Yeah. But what about somebody who goes in there and doesn't even know what they're supposed to say, or doesn't even know that they can. Right. There were times that I would go to the clinic when I did not have insurance and I would sit in the room and there's been times people forgot I was in the room. Mm. They never came mm. back to get mm. me. They never came back to see me. Like I said, there's been times that I've done blood work and nobody called to tell mm. me the blood work results. There's been times I've sat in the ER and just been like, you know what, let's just go. Mm. So I thought about all of that and it just made me so mad. Mm -hmm. It made me so mad because it's not fair to us that our entire time in this country as black people, our quality of life is dictated by other people. Right. 
because the right to have and not have children affects your quality of life. Yes. It's yours. It's something about what you want. It's your legacy. It's your body. It's your mm -hmm. health. You should have the right to make those decisions. And unfortunately, like so many other aspects of black experience in this country and other countries, mm -hmm. unfortunately, all of our wants and desires are predicated on what someone else's system says we can have. Mm -hmm. And that was infuriating and still is yeah. infuriating to yeah. me. Absolutely. And I also think that to your point, you would think because they are doctors, they could be able to just educate like, oh, I'm going to tell you about PCOS and how it looks so different in, in so many different women. It is not just one plus one equals two for every single person. Let's examine your symptoms. Let me educate you on your body and what you are dealing with versus people not knowing, doctors not saying, and people continuing to suffer and there's no resolution in it all. Mm -hmm. and, then, and another thing that that's why I do love the broken brown egg is because, yeah, we d didn't get that in, in sex ed, you know, to really learn about our bodies. So miss the boat there if they even still do sex ed. And then, um, you know, you might not get it with your medical provider. So miss the boat there. So then it's like we as a community have to be able to talk about it ourselves and like break the stigma and not not just ignore it or not. Um, just not make it like a, a, a topic, like you were saying, like, we just don't get pregnant or don't do this, but let's talk about your body. What do you want? Are you family planning? These are some things to look out for. Yeah, it is irregular. It's not common for a woman to have a period for almost two months to be bleeding in that way. Let's, let's yeah. talk about that. Yeah. I had written to always at one point I wrote to the hymn. I was like, <laughs> thank you so much. But it's new infinity brand that you got going because <laughs> thank you. You have no idea how somebody like me needs these. Like mm -hmm. I shouldn't even have to do that. Or people who weren't able to go to school because they, their periods were so painful. Yes. Your period's not supposed to be painful. Yeah. That's indicated that something's not right. Yeah. But we didn't know that because we weren't told that. Right. And we weren't told that because we didn't have that kind of relationship medically. And we don't pass down that kind of conversation. There's mm -hmm. so many times now. Once I've started talking where I find out somebody in my family has endometriosis or has experienced loss or pursued adoption or anything. And mm -hmm. it's just somebody needed to start the conversation. Mm -hmm. And now I just won't shut up about it because <laughs> I have nieces, I have goddaughters, and I want them to know if they are in a situation where they feel like this is something wrong but I need to be quiet about it. Then mm -hmm. they know, oh, I can call Gina. She'll tell me mm. or she'll she'll level. She'll tell me the truth or she'll explain it, you know, because there's so many additional stigmas that we don't think about when it comes to young black girls. I knew girls who would miss periods, but they wouldn't say anything because they didn't want to tell a parent and the parent assumed that they must have been sexually active. Mm. You must have been doing something. Mm -hmm. So they would be gaining weight or they would be doing, you know, missing periods. And it would be something that probably was PCOS. Yeah. You know, or now that we're adults, we know where it was endometriosis or fibroid or whatever. But at the time, that fear and feeling like you don't have anybody to talk to was having them suffer needlessly. Mm -hmm. So when I look at the young women in my life, you know, I think if I know sex ed ain't going to teach you this, mm -hmm. let me just drop this hint real quick. Right. Baby girl, that ain't supposed to go like that, you mm -hmm. know, or my goddaughter, she's preparing for college. And I think about the fact that statistically, 
our um, colleges are reducing their number of clinics and reducing their access to health care. So a lot of our young black women are going and they don't even have anybody to go to. Mm. They're going to a room where there's a bowl of condoms, you know, as if that's all that reproductive health consists of. Yes. And that's just not humane. Mm-hmm. It's just not fair. Mm-hmm. They should know. And, it, and it's also it goes back to this idea that we're not worthy Mm-hmm. of having a full life experience the way that we want to. Right. So you don't deserve to have kids. So we're not going to talk to you about how to have them. We're going to tell you not to. Mm-hmm. And you have to earn the right to. So we're mm-hmm. going to talk to you about what you need to do and what you need to not do and what kind of person you need to be. We have all these qualifiers on mm-hmm. everything. And it's it's just not fair. Yeah. It's just not fair. And the more that like within our own community that we talk about and have these discussions, the more we can feel empowered to not have shame um, and not be quiet about it. Like like you were saying, you can pick your provider, you can change your provider, you can be pregnant, nine months pregnant and change your provider. You can be in the hospital and not like your nurse and change your nurse. You are not a victim to the medical medical um, system. Like you can feel empowered to make choices and vocalize what you want. And yes, it's unfair for sure that we have to be put in the position in the first place. Um, but you don't have to settle for it if you don't like something and you don't feel like people are serving you the way that you want to. Yeah, and you're not angry black woman, mm-hmm. aggressive black male mm-hmm. for stating what you want. There's plenty of times where I've seen um, black women sit, you know, even in those times that I sat in the ER, but then just last night, my sister went to the ER for uh, bronchitis and she was sitting there and she said that she sat there. I talked to her like five o'clock last night. She left at 2 a.m. and had still had not been diagnosed. (laughs) Mm. And she was saying how there was a lady sitting next to her that just, she said she was a really sweet lady. And just after a while, she just started crying and she was just like, I'm suffering. Nobody cares that I'm suffering. And I, in that moment, it just took me back to sitting at that same mm-hmm. hospital, mm-hmm. feeling that same way, or at Cook County or wherever I needed to go, but feeling that same way mm-hmm. that nobody cares that I'm suffering. But if I make a fuss, then I'm an angry black person. Then I'm an aggressive person. Mm-hmm. Then I'm a problem. I'm not advocating for myself. I'm being rude. I'm being abrasive. Mm-hmm. If I speak too loudly, then I'm that black girl. If mm-hmm. I if I curse, then I'm that black girl. If anything that I do to advocate for myself puts me in some form of danger, mm-hmm. be it physical or social danger, where it's like, well, now I'm really not going to help you because you rude. I'm really not going to do for you. And so that that concept that you can say, you know, I'd, I'd like another nurse, please. Yes. Or, can I speak to a manager? Any other race that says that it's dealt with a different way. But right. when we do it, it's angry black woman, you're rude, you're abrasive, you're aggressive, mm-hmm. argumentative, all of those negative words mm-hmm. when we're advocating for ourselves yeah. and each other. Yeah. It's it's frustrating it that is. we need to relearn. I'm not I'm standing up for myself. Self care right. is standing up for myself. Yes. It's not always bubble baths. Right. It's not always bubble baths. Yes. Self care <laughs> is saying, thank you. I'd like a different doctor, please. Right. Absolutely. And I don't have to accept whatever label or narrative you want to give to me because I know my truth. Now, um, because I specialize in maternal mental health, um, working with women who are dealing with infertility is a large population of the women that I serve. 
um, whether they're having like an IUI or IVF or going through surrogacy or adoption. And I noticed um, that a huge big first step that happens in the work that we do with each other is helping them accept the fact that conceiving naturally, you are at the juncture where that is not a part of your journey anymore. And now you are, there's other options that are placed in front of you to be able to get to the ultimate goal that you want to get to. And oftentimes that that is very difficult, you know, that that is a huge challenge for them to accept IVF and and how they feel about their body and what they think about themselves as as a woman and even having conversations with their family and especially for black families like to have to educate their parents on IVF and what this means and what this looked like and um the preconceived notions of the cost and all of that for yourself what was that like for you and and how did you get to that acceptance stage all of that, what you just said. <laughs> um, because I did not know anyone who had done IVF. And all I ever heard about it was needles, 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 needles. Um, and I hate needles. And I was like, first of all, I'm afraid. And then what you said that I thought was profound and not many people think about is there is a preconception of what it's going to cost. Yep. Where we assume before we even look into it, mm-hmm. that's out of reach for me. I know I can't afford that, so what can I do instead? Mm-hmm. I know I probably can't do that, so what can I do instead? Before we even look into it in many cases. Right. And so that was totally me. I was like, I ain't gonna be able to afford that. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I'm gonna do that. Um, and I also felt like, what does this mean? Like, how do I explain this? Now, it was a little easier on one side of my family because I have a cousin who did IVF because she's a, a single mom by choice. And so she chose to do IVF. She's a lesbian. And so that made more sense to people because Mm -hmm. they were like, well, how how else would she? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was easier on one side of my family. But on the other side, I wasn't sure because we have a religious family. We have a family of ministers and reverends and all that kind of stuff. I wasn't sure how it would be received because I had heard from someone else who was Catholic that they couldn't even let it be known in their parish that this was something they were considering because it's it's not accepted there. And so those kind of fears were there. But once I got past that part, it was more so when I finally realized I was going to have to do IVF. So my, my goal was I want to try to do whatever I can do for as long as I can do it. Mm. And I wanted more than anything to become a parent. I tried to teach myself, it's not, a, do you want to be pregnant or do you want to be a parent? Mm. And I had to really get get clear on that. Like, okay, what's the goal here? Is it pregnancy and what you think that is, or is it parenthood and being a mom? Um, And I wrestled with that back and forth. We talked about foster care. We talked about adoption. We pursued adoption at one point. Um, And when it came to IVF, it wasn't until I finally got a HSG test, a hysterosalpingogram. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the test where they shoot dye into your uterus um, and see if there's any blockages in your uterus or your fallopian tubes. And we found out that both of my tubes were blocked. Mm-hmm. Um, and up until that point, I had been pretty tough about like, okay, so I need to do metformin? Cool. All right, you're going to give me Clomid again. All right, great. I need to lose a couple pounds? I don't want to do that that way, but all right, let's do it. And I just kept pushing and pushing. But it was something about when she did that HSG test and it showed there is literally no way, Regina, for sperm to meet egg. Mm. There's no way. 
that that was the first time that I was like devastated about it. Like I had been frustrated and sad and miserable for all intents and purposes regarding infertility for years at that point. Mm -hmm. I just felt like I'm going to take the right medication or I'm going to figure something out and it's going to finally work. And I'll get that spontaneous pregnancy that everybody else Mm. gets where they just, Oh, I think I'll take a test today. Um, And when that guy wouldn't move and she said, you know, you've gone as far as you can go. I think IVF is the only way you're going to be able to get around this. I'm pushing as hard as I can on the syringe and the dye is just not moving. Mm -hmm. They're both blocked. Like all those words, just, it was like, boom, boom, boom. And I, I left there and I, when I got home, it was the first time that I just really like cried, cried about it because it was like a a final answer of no, Mm. not no to being a mother, but no to the way that you want it to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And it felt so heavy. And I, I sat with that for a little while and I had to go back to what I've been telling myself in the first place. Like, okay, what's your end goal? Mm-hmm. If that if that way isn't going to work, what's your end goal? Mm-hmm. And at that point, I said, well, you know, I know people who've done IVF. At that point, I met a few other black women who had done it. I knew a few other people. And it was like, okay, now we got to go into the next phase. What's this going to cost? Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to really wrestle with my feelings about fear of needles and fear of being at the fertility center and, and, and fear of explaining what IVF was to family and, and fear of, I had to let that fear sit in the back. It was either, either I'm going to sit in this or I'm going to move forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I got to move forward. Um, and when I really finally did IVF and, you know, Illinois is a mandated state, but we pushed, we, we turned that into part of the journey. We did fundraisers to raise money for the medication um, and really just tried to take our power back from from that no. Mm, we mm-hmm. tried to take our power back mm-hmm. and say, well, well, if this is not the way the journey's going to go, let me get some balloons for this side of the journey because yes. what I'm not going to do is just sit and let this thing own me because mm-hmm. it was it was running us. It felt like it was running us. Um, and so when we finally did IVF, we, we applied for a K Foundation grant. Mm-hmm. Um, we got that. We did, you know, Illinois is a mandated state. So some, some of it is covered here. But there are parts that it doesn't cover. There's parts of the medication that it may not cover. There's parts of the treatment. If you wanted to do genetic testing, that may not be covered. So we really wanted to just take some ownership back and mm-hmm. say, okay, so how can we raise the money? Yeah. Okay, so then how can we choose the doctor? And even as a librarian, I, I started doing programs at the library about pathways to parenthood. Mm. And I had um, DCFS come to talk about how to foster through, you know, how to adopt through the foster care centri- uh, system and somebody from the cradle, which is an adoption agency here in Chicago, come in and talk about how to adopt through their agency. Um, and they had an African, they have an African-American adoption um, department where they really try to push for more black families to consider adoption. I had um, a reproductive endocrinologist come. So I really wanted for myself, but also for the community, I wanted them to see there are different paths to this. And how can we remove the stigma except by giving information? And so Mm -hmm. that was really important to me and for me. And that's actually how I met who would become our reproductive endocrinologist. Mm. She was the doctor who came for that program at the library. And she was just, 
so welcoming and friendly. And when my clinic didn't take my insurance anymore, she was like, well, come see me. Come see me. I'll take your insurance. Oh, and, and that's how we finally ended up getting to IVF. Um, but it, it was a hard transition from how you think something's going to go mm-hmm. to how it's going to have to go. And right. you have to decide, well, what's your end goal? What's, what's the end goal? Because there's lots of paths to that. Yeah. And are you comfortable with those paths or not? Right. It becomes the question. I love how you said taking your power back. Kind of like when we first got on the call, um, before we started recording, you were talking about anxiety. And a lot of the women that I work with that go through IVF have anxiety. Understandably so. And I always say it's unrealistic for me to say, do these steps and your anxiety will disappear. The anxiety will exist. You know, it is living in your home, but it's Mm -hmm. how can you coexist with the anxiety so it's not debilitating? How can you take your power back? What is within your control? Because there's a lot of things about this process that are not in your control. A lot Mm -hmm. of pivots and turns and things that are very unexpected, but what can you own in this, you know, like, being as healthy as you possibly can be, doing positive self-talk, affirmations, um, showing up for your appointments, taking your medication, raising funds, applying for grants to get funding, all of that so you can own a piece of it. And then a large part of IVF sometimes, like when you were saying with the needles, can feel like a science project. It can take the intimacy out of sex, you know, of Okay, what what time? You know, we got it. We got this time limit or, or whatnot with it, and then how women can view their bodies in that process and their self image and and how they look at themselves, a lot of that. So it takes a lot of um, consciousness, um, positive self talk, grounding, and being able to really own the things that are within your control so that you can get through the process and get to the end goal. So I, I think you worded that so perfectly. Thank you. I, I work on it every day. And I <laughs> I was just telling, um, I, was, I was just having this conversation with my husband in the car and then last weekend with a cousin, um, because I was telling her my anxiety heightened during infertility. Mm-hmm. And um, I've, I've spoken to therapists before who were, you know, were like, well, some of it, you may have always had mm-hmm. some form of anxiety mm-hmm. that you were just high functioning. Right. And this, this level of unexpected trauma, you don't expect this to be this. Cause when you first start, you're like, okay, all right, well, they say we're going to need a little extra help. Okay. Well, we got to do, mm-hmm. and you kind of look at it like, all right, this is a challenge. Yeah. Let's go. And then it doesn't. And you're like, okay, Mm-hmm. Well, let's try this again. Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't. And you're like, okay, let's try it again. Okay. What do I do? Like you just lose that fervor because it's, it's a, it's highs and lows. It's highs and lows mm-hmm. and highs and lows. And so you get accustomed to the other shoes going to drop. Let me not even get comfortable. Right. Let me not get excited. Yeah. yeah, they're going to cancel the cycle because last time they canceled the cycle or, you know, I might get pregnant, but maybe I can't stay pregnant. So let me not enjoy this pregnancy for what it is because right. it might not last. And all of those anxious thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, and it starts to manifest in every other aspect of your life. Right. If you're not careful, mm-hmm. because I know for me, it became it escalated from 
I'm anxious because this isn't working to why isn't this working to maybe it's my fault. This isn't working mm-hmm. to it's my fault because this is a, I'm a bad person or mm-hmm. I caused this somehow, or mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't mean anything. I'm expendable. And mm-hmm. so when you start feeling like you're expendable, then you start feeling like, well, anything could happen to me at any time. I could, you know, I was afraid to drive. I was afraid that anxiety got so high because yeah. it was like, who am I? I yeah. thought I was this and I thought that I meant something, but I don't even know where I stand or I don't know where I stand with my partner or you're anxious about maybe they're going to leave me mm-hmm. or maybe they deserve to leave mm-hmm. me or, you know, all of those things start playing. And I really had to kind of, some of it was crazy looking to some people, but I, I was like, look, you do what you got to do. I'm going to do what I do. But when those thoughts, when those ruminations would come mm-hmm. and I would hear myself saying the same things or mean things to myself, I would have to literally out loud say, okay, stop. Yeah. Or I would have to say, that's not real. Mm-hmm. I was good for saying that. That's not real. Mm-hmm. And I would say it out loud at work, at church, in the car, mm-hmm. at the store, because those ruminations will catch you wherever you are. Yes. You'll see, you'll sit somewhere and those triggers come and you don't know where they're going to come from. You might've been having a great day and then boom, here's, uh, you know, it might not even be anybody, you know, one of my triggers was Beyonce. Mm. When Beyonce came out on the MTV awards to love on top Um, and announce her pregnancy, pregnancy. it meant that every time I heard that song, Mm. I heard and saw a pregnancy announcement and everybody loved that song. So every time I heard it, it would be like, Okay, y'all. Yeah. Okay. Baby, it's you. You're the one I want. Mm-hmm. Please be quiet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just, it was it was wearing me out, mm-hmm. and I couldn't prepare myself for it because you don't know when you're going to hear it. Right. And so I would hear that, and I would instantly go into this that spiral of those thoughts. You don't know where those triggers are going to hit you. Mm-hmm. And so I had to teach myself to be like, that's not real, Regina. That's not true. Mm-hmm. You know, the story you're playing in your head. <laughs> Right? Yeah, because that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, the story that you're playing in your head, you in your own video, as my mom would say, get out your video. You know, <laughs> get out your video, turn it off, stop putting yourself on the program. Mm-hmm. Like, and it, it helps that my family talks. We talk like this. <laughs> you know, if 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 that's not your biz, we tell each other, don't pick that up. That's yes. not yours. Don't pick that up. Yes. We, we talk to each other that way. So that was helpful for me mm-hmm. that I come from an environment where we have those little grounding exercises that we've taught ourselves. Mm. But I also recognize that my family has those grounding exercises because many times most of them won't go to therapy. Mm. So they've had to teach themselves over the years. I'm not going to go talk to somebody, but I will talk to me. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I will talk to me and God. So what do I think <laughs> God would tell me? And so I have decided to take it a step further and I go to therapy and church. Mm. And I talk to myself. Mm-hmm. My pastor says people might need Christ, a counselor and a coach. <laughs> and I, was like, I love yeah. it. I love it. I was like, yeah, that's me. I need all three. <laughs> I need all three. But those grounding exercises, they helped me. Mm-hmm. They they really did. And I I used them through pregnancy. I used them because after pregnancy, I had postpartum. Mm. So I, I've used those. I've used them today. Right. I use them all the time because you you do kind of lose yourself and you have to bring yourself back in. Mm-hmm. Right. The mind is so powerful. Like yes. how your thoughts can just take off. Even like when you were saying about triggers about pregnancy announcements. Um, for some women, when a friend has a shower 
you know, and they are battled with, I'm happy for them, but I'm reminded of where I am and I'm, I'm sad. I'm for you, I'm sad for me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that can be difficult. And it, it and for people who haven't gone through that same experience, being able to try to communicate that very um, conflictual feeling can be difficult yeah. because it can be like, well, you're not happy for it's your sister. You're not happy your sister's having a baby. <laughs> exactly that. What kind of person are you? Yeah. What kind of, I mean, what kind of friend? You're mm-hmm. not a good friend. That was the one that I hated. Mm-hmm. Is the good friend concept? It, infertility, for all that it takes from you. You know, it's very. I consider it a friend of me because there are some things that it taught me in terms of boundary setting and recognizing what was important to me and how to express that, and also not picking up some what other people put down mm-hmm. because that was a big one. That well, what kind of friend are you? You're not a good friend. You mean you're not going to her shower? Why you don't want to help plan? Mm-hmm. Because I have to preserve myself. Thank yes. You. <laughs> Because I'm trying to live uh, through the day. Thank you very much. Yes. I, you know, like those yes. kind of things I had to really get comfortable yes. with because I started to feel like, right. am I a bad friend? Because I don't want to go to that. Right. Am I? Maybe this is why it's not working for me because I don't know how to be happy for other people. Mm. And I'm not grateful. And I don't have enough gratitude. Right. And this is why. And people don't realize that, that that's this just you just threw something else in my spiral. Yeah. I'm in a spiral all the time. And you just threw an extra thing in it. that was like, well, see, also, you're not grateful. You're not happy for other people. Yeah. So now there's another reason why this ain't going to work for you. And it's like, let people be. Right. Let right. people be. If they say what they need and they communicate a boundary, even if that boundary affects you, we need to learn how to let that be. Yeah, let, my mom tells me, it. let people be who they are. Yes. Yeah. Let them be who they are. And I, I have that on a sign in my office as a, as a teen librarian. So when the teens come in there and they complaining about each other, let them be who they are. You ain't got to be about it. Mm-hmm. Right. And I had to myself that, that if that's how people feel about my boundary, then unfortunately I might have to love them from a distance mm-hmm. because I'm trying to save myself right yes. now because this feels like literally life or death to me. This yes. feels like this could be the death of my relationship, my friendships, my, you know, and I did lose friends during this because I was, trying to preserve myself and set boundaries for myself. And, and everybody couldn't deal with that. Mm-hmm. Everybody wasn't comfortable with that. Um, and, and it's easy for somebody to be like, well, you don't care about me and you're not, you don't, you're not happy for me and my, my pregnancy, or you don't want, you don't want to be around my baby. And it's like, sweetheart, I will send you a beautiful gift. Right. I will shout that baby out everywhere I go, but I can't pick it up. You know, mm-hmm. like some things, make people feel self-conscious but it's really just you trying to set a boundary it's not i don't i don't hate your kid i can't pick up babies right now yeah because when you leave you get to go home and snuggle that baby and i'm going to be in turmoil for the next three hours and i need to respect and honor that yeah so that part of you know getting comfortable with setting those boundaries and stating it was a big that was a big hurdle Mm -hmm. too of getting comfortable you because first i had to get comfortable with it myself like Am I uncomfortable going to baby showers? That mm-hmm. seems so weird. I've been going to baby showers since I was little. Why don't I want to go? Mm. And then I had to get comfortable with going, oh, well, maybe it's because you're tired of going to all of these baby showers for everybody under the sun, mm-hmm. from your 15-year-old sister to your 30-something-year-old cousin. Mm-hmm. And 
you know all the answers to the baby shower games because mm-hmm. you've been to so many. Mm-hmm. And then next week you're about to go to the doctor and they're going to tell you some more bad news. Yeah. Maybe don't go. Yeah, don't go. <laughs> like, and I you're not a bad go. person for not going. It yeah. is okay. You're not, not a go. bad person. Yeah. And if this one moment dictates your entire relationship with this person. Then it wasn't worth it. Then it ain't what you thought it was. <laughs> no way. You know, you, you get to a point where you start to get people who will say, you know, I know that this is difficult for you. I don't expect you to come. Yeah. And that's what I tell people. Like when they're trying to figure out what to say, or what to do, let your people off the hook. Mm-hmm. Tell them, I don't want to leave you out because I don't, I know that that can be painful too. So I'm telling you this, but I'm telling you, you know, privately so that you can have your feelings about it. I don't expect you to come. Mm. Like those kind of things are giving the other person grace and respect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and love it lets them know that they're loved and that you're thinking about them mm-hmm. you know even in the time where it's a, a happy time for you you recognize that their feelings don't take away from your happiness yeah that's a hard one for women especially and friends and how we're taught you know in terms of you you right. need to be nice all the time it's like i'm not not being nice I'm being nice to me. Right. I need to be nice to me. Who's going to be nice to me? Right. <laughs> yeah. First and foremost, yourself. And yeah. then when, when someone does let you off the hook, let them. And and not say, well, did they really mean it? Yeah. Well, they were just being nice. Would they n- believe them if they said it? Believe them. There was this quote that I read once and it like hit home. And so I, I tell it to all of my clients who put others before themselves. And it was like, um... Stop setting yourself on fire to keep other people warm. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and it's so true. Like, take care of yourself. Don't make yourself have to suffer when you don't have to. If you don't want to go to that shower, if you don't want to go to that gender reveal party, if you don't want to go to that sip and see, it is okay. You don't have to go. Yeah, all right. They ain't going to think about you. They're going to no. be enjoying themselves. And if you want to be that friend that sends a beautiful gift that mm-hmm. they can open... Do that, but also set your boundaries. Yes. All right, so my my last question is um, with statistics. So black women experience infertility two times more than others, and we're less likely to seek out treatment. And that can be for various, you know, reasons. Um, With me growing up in the South, like we talked about, it's not something that's often talked about. There's the preconceived notion of how the cost will be. Some people look at, having um ivf surrogacy all of that is like a, a white people thing mm-hmm. um not some white people and you playing god yes all yes all of those things and then there's also those myths about black women well black women are fertile they have all these children um and just all of these untruths um about it how do you think we can start really promoting um, black women to be become more educated about their reproductive health and when they need something to get it. Yeah, that's the heavy one, ain't it? <laughs> we are, we're fighting so many things. Yeah. We're fighting stereotypes. We're fighting generational uh, misconceptions. We're fighting medical disparities. Yeah. We're fighting all of these things. The best and first thing that I realized that I could do was talk. Um, and that's not everybody's journey. Some people are very private or it's not even, they don't even feel emotionally safe to share. And that's mm-hmm. important to recognize also. 
So what I say is we need windows and mirrors. Mm. We need people who are willing to be the reflection so that people who are experiencing this can see it and see, oh, that's what's going on. Okay. That I knew I wasn't crazy. Cool. Now I can say what I wanted to say because I, I, now I understand what I'm feeling. But we also need windows. We need the ones who, if you're not comfortable talking, here's some place where you can look in and see what the experience is like. You can mm. send somebody to, you know, Calais Stewart has warriorwednesdays.com. You can send somebody there and say, go watch these interviews and then come back, back and talk to me next time you want to ask me what I'm waiting on. You could send somebody to the Broken Brown Egg and say, you know what? And I actually had somebody tell me that she she couldn't figure out how to communicate it with her family or her friends. And so she sent them to my blog and just said, mm. just read that. Mm. And that touched me because it was like, you know, me finding my voice is helping somebody else find their voice. Mm -hmm. And so I think with all of those things up against us, the best thing we could do is shine a light on them. Mm and highlight these things. And it doesn't have to be your personal story for you to highlight it. I try to look at reproductive justice now as a, a justice, reproductive health is a justice issue. Yeah. It's a social justice issue, it's a reproductive justice issue. There are a lot of things about our history when it comes to reproduction that we're not our own. Yeah, You know, from, I hate to even say his name, but from J. Marion Sims, um, experimenting on enslaved black women to come up with his medical, you know, breakthroughs like the speculum and things like that, or, you know, the thousands of, of black women and indigenous women and Hispanic women who were given hysterectomies without mm. their consent or their knowledge. You know, we have to shine a light on those things. We need to include those things when we talk about justice issues. Yeah. We need to include those conversations. We need to bring out, you know, the idea that when people say things like, well, black people don't adopt. Uh, what did you think we did <laughs> when somebody got sold away and their kids were still there on the plantation? Mm, mm -hmm. What about your cousin who ain't your sister, but she lived at your house since she was seven. And so you call her sister cousin. Yeah. Like we don't think about the fact that yes, we do. Right. Stop saying that. Right. We always so, have an open always, household. Yeah. yeah. We've always done it. We've always done it where you take in a sibling or you take in somebody down the block. Or, yeah. And these are things that we don't look at in the traditional sense. And so we assume, well, we don't do it like that. Right. But what you don't understand is when you say black people don't adopt your cousin, who's thinking about adoption thinks, Oh, well we don't adopt. Mm -hmm. So let me, let me take that off the table. Mm -hmm. I don't want to rock the boat or do something strange or whatever. So we have to look at things differently. We have this, you know, idea about gestational carriers and surrogacy. And one of the things that Reverend Stacy. Um, the founder of Fertility for Color Girls said once that I has has stuck with me and I was like, yes, <laughs> is, you know, for those who look at that from a religious standpoint and feel like, well, that's not natural. And da, 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 da. Um, Mary was a gestational carrier. Mm. If you want to go there uh. you know, so <laughs> at the things differently and reframe how we talk about it so that it doesn't sound so shameful. When yeah. I am talking to my nieces or my goddaughters. I try to, and I do this really when I talk with all teens, and it, it may just be from being a teen librarian or, or being a, a teen professional, but I've learned that when you're listening to them and you're responding, 
I don't make a facial expression that says that what they're saying is odd or crazy or mm. sounds. Mm, why are you doing that? I try to make sure that I keep a straight face the whole time and that the questions that I ask are really for them to ask themselves. Mm -hmm. They're not judgmental. They're not mean spirited. They're not, you know, let me tell you as an adult what you should do. If they're talking to me and they say, you know, and I was thinking about trying the diva cup because I don't like, you know, pads, but my mom says, you know, don't use that or don't use tampons and da 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 da. And I'll go, okay, well, what do you want to do? Mm -hmm. Have you talked to her again since you looked into it? Oh, okay. And I just try to make sure that it's, it doesn't come across as this is a big deal. Yeah. You know, because then they feel ashamed. And so all of these conversations are very much that same thing. And we're doing it to adults where they mention surrogacy or they mention IVF and we give them that. Why are you, why are you doing that? Mm -hmm. We need to do the same thing with them and just be like, okay, well, what did you, what did you learn about it? Can you tell me some more about it? And that opens the door and it doesn't make people feel like, let me conceal this because it's, it sounds crazy and nobody else is doing this and it must be something really wrong with me that I'm doing it. The more that we make it comfortable for people to tell us what they need, and then give them that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the more we break all of these stigmas, same with mental. We have so many things on us. We do. And it's, it's so frustrating because, like I said earlier, it's frustrating because it's like everybody else, when they express what's a difficulty for them culturally, it's a rallying around them to support them through it. And when it comes to black people and we say what's going on with us, it's off. It's our fault. Yeah. You know, well, the doctor didn't help you because you probably didn't say the right thing. You probably mm. didn't ask the right question. You know, you probably, well, what did you say? What were you wearing? Why did you go over there? What were you doing there? You know, yeah. we get shot. And it's like, well, why were you there? Why did you have that? Why did you talk back to the officer? Yeah. Uh, maybe your tubes are blocked because you had a, a, a pelvic inflammatory disease. Maybe you were sexually transmitted disease. All of those things, we got to fix our own stuff. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's frustrating that when, when it comes to us, there's no compassion in the conversation. There's just, clearly that's your fault. Mm -hmm. you, you, you caused this somehow. And that weight and that shame, it, it's so emotionally draining. So for me, empowering one another by talking and listening and allowing each other to feel our feelings and explore different avenues without judgment and with genuine compassion and concern, like, I hope that works out. Do you need me to pray for you? Mm. What does that process look like? I've never, I've never heard of anybody doing that. Can you tell me what that is? Yeah. I don't know anything about it. As opposed to, we don't do that. Yeah. Girl, black people don't do that because you're not willing to to step out of your ignorance and learn. Right. You know, it's like or just you know, just drink this drink say. this tea. If you drink this yeah. tea, you'll get pregnant. Just do that. Yeah. yeah you don't have to do all. Walk around the block three times, <laughs> and catch your Bible and rub it. And it that's not helpful. Yeah. That's not helpful. Mm -hmm. You know, come over here and let grandma pray on you. Thank you. Thanks for the prayer. Also, <laughs> I'm having this baby shower for my eggs. Right, right, right. We're, we're doing <laughs> this fundraiser on Saturday. I'm going to need some, yeah. some donations towards this medication. Since y'all done bought a crib for cousin so-and-so on her fifth baby, mm -hmm. I would just like somebody to just throw maybe a hundred towards my egg freeze. I'm just, yes, yes. You know, like, yes. something different out of the conversation that shame will help us to normalize it yes. in such a way that we'll start talking more and then we'll be in the conversation more. Yeah. We'll be, you know, more willing to talk when we see that we're being heard. Mm -hmm. And so those of us who are already in this space, opening the door for one another and, and making sure that if, if 
you know, like I do on, on Broken Brown Egg, I do Real Talk Tuesdays. If somebody feels like they can't share on their own page, I tell them, well, send it to me and I'll post it. Mm. And I just post it anonymous. And that way you got to say what you want to say mm. anyway. And, and you can share it from me. And you're like, <laughs> look what she said. You know, so I try to make sure that we're, we're supporting each other in whatever is comfortable about us finding our voice mm-hmm. because it's not fair that so many things still our voices as, as black people. There's so many, so many things that we're not, we didn't pause it. Yeah. It steals from us. It steals our quality of life and our voice and mm-hmm. our emotional health. And I feel like want that. We're taking this back. Right. 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 We're taking this back. Yes. Thank you so much, Regina. I am so grateful for this conversation. I could talk to you all day. <laughs> this is like all of these discussions is just like, ah, like I just get so passionate about it. Like I love it. <laughs> but thank you so much. And for people who aren't already following the Broken Brown Egg, please do. It's a blog. It's a resource. It's a platform of encouragement. There's tons of resources listed on the site. Um, it is just so, so much. And if anything, it's just a space for black women who are dealing with infertility to not feel alone um, and to just have a space to really just have some to feel relatable. Um, and, and I love that. And I love the work that you do. And you're doing such, such great work that is so needed for so many women. And, and I say that as someone who works with women who are going through this, and this is an asset to them. So I just think everything that you're doing is so impressive. And it is incredibly impactful. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. There's, there's been many times where I'm like, I'm talking into the void and then Mm-mm. somebody will send me a message and I'll realize, nope, still need it. <laughs> still need it. Still, still need it. it. We still, but we are, we are getting somewhere because mm-hmm. when I first started the Broken Brown Egg, there was just me. And then there was the K Foundation and me. Mm-hmm. And then there was the K Foundation and me and Fertility for Colored Girls. And, and now you can go on and here you know go to instagram and there's there's a group of us Mm. even if it's not the largest group there's a group of us Mm -hmm. that can just say girl come on girl let's talk (laughs) in your own vernacular (laughs) as a reflection of your own skin tone it's it it means so much so thank you so much for inviting me and having me i appreciate it like i said this is my soapbox i enjoy I, this this heals me, um, so I, I appreciate any time that I get the opportunity to talk about these issues. Thank you. skin just like pearls, the best thing about the world. I never trade you for anybody else. Have you looked in the mirror lately? Wish you could trade eyes with me. There's complexities in complexion. What your skin is, glow like diamonds. Dig me like the earth you be giving birth. To everything alive, baby, know your worth I love everything about you from your nappy curls To every single curve, your body natural Same skin that was broken, me the same skin taking over Most things are the focus